Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. Genesis chapter 19? Is that where we left off? Yes. So who took my advice and read ahead Genesis 19? Yeah? We got one. Anyone else? Weird stuff. Weird stuff, like I said. Genesis chapter 19 is weird. In fact, we have two strange episodes ahead of us. Genesis, the last part of Genesis 19, and then in Genesis chapter 20. Uh, but we are going to start in just a moment at Genesis 19, verse 30. Before we jump into it, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together to come together and study your word, for your word is truth. We pray you would speak now, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we left off with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis, was it 17? Excuse me, Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham, uh, Yahweh God, that is Yahweh the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who will eventually become incarnate as the man we know as Jesus Christ, appears to Abraham with two angels. And uh, Abraham puts out a spread for him, uh, feeds him all kinds of good stuff, shows him great hospitality. But then the angels continue on to Sodom and Gomorrah to see what the, uh, the culture is like there because they've heard it's really evil and that God is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, in verse 22 of chapter 18, we see that Abraham intercedes for Sodom to Yahweh. Asking, is there 50 righteous? What about 45? What about 40? And uh, mix it all the way down to 10. We learned that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked, or God does not punish the righteous with the wicked. And there are not even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So God is going to destroy the city. However, God is going to save Lot. Lot is called a righteous man in the New Testament. So God saves righteous Lot and his family. And uh, in Genesis 19, we have that destruction for us. And we are now at the latter part of Genesis 19. Uh, Lot flees with his two daughters and his wife. His wife turns back and she becomes a pillar of salt. Uh, We also see there's this evidence of verse 23 where uh, there seems to be two Yahwehs. The Yahweh from earth is calling down fire and brimstone from the Yahweh in heaven. And it's not that there's two Yahwehs. There's one Yahweh who exists in a plurality of persons. Here we see two persons, God the Son, God the Father. And uh, with the fullness of the New Testament, we see uh, the third person as well, God the Holy Spirit. So this is early Trinitarian work here. Every time we come to that, I, I want to point it out because so many people today will swear to you, and these are people with PhDs who ought to know better, but they don't. They'll swear to you that the Trinity is something that the early church made up. It's not actually in the Bible anywhere. It's something that early Christians made up. And uh, that's just not true. It's right here in the Bible. There's early evidence of it right here in Genesis chapter 19. And of course, we have fuller revelation of that in the New Testament. So where we left off, Lot and his daughters have fled the destruction of the city. And we pick it up in verse 30. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 30 to the end just to get it in front of us. And then we'll go back and talk about what's going on. 
Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. We'll pause there. So, a nice... Wholesome tale, Susie Homemaker and everything going on. No, this is this is pretty odd, pretty strange. How does this strike you? I'm gonna I'm gonna open it up for for you to to give me a comment. Yeah. Sounds like rape to me. Rape. Okay. So the daughters rape their dad. The daughters rape their dad. Okay. Oh, that's that's an interesting interpretation. Anyone else? Just the this is the story. This is in the Bible. This is a story in the Bible, right? And a lot of people are like, oh, the Bible is all about God's love. The Bible is God's love story to you. Have you ever heard that? I've heard people say that the Bible is God's love letter to you. And then it's got weird stuff like this. You're like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. But yeah, the Bible's got some crazy, bizarre stories. And because I believe in the inspiration of scripture, I believe they're all true. This is a true story. So let's jump into it and see if we can't understand what's going on. We have Lot and his two daughters. These were the two daughters that we looked at last week that uh, Lot offered for the uh, the men of Sodom in place of the angels. We did talk about how Lot's showing hospitality there to the angels. That Lot would rather have his own name, and the the, the family name, uh, and meaning his own name, be uh, shamed than rather have these two men that he's never met before be shamed. So these are those these are those daughters. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah was completely obliterated, and Lot saw that happen. Lot and his family saw that whole thing happen. So what we don't know is where Lot is think is what Lot is thinking now about the rest of the world. So I'll give you my interpretation. Just kind of fill this out to try to at least make sense of what's going on. I think what's happening here is, is Lot and his two daughters think the whole world has been destroyed, not just Sodom and Gomorrah. For me to make sense of this, I have to think that the view that they have is not only was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, but God rained fire and brimstone down on the whole earth. And it's not outside of God's character to do this. He's done this once already. It was called the flood, right? With, with Noah, Genesis chapter six. So I think that's what they think is happening here. God must have, it must have been another judgment. I mean, they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. They saw how bad it got, at least in their little, little, uh, their corner of the world. And who knows what they're thinking? Like they don't have internet, so they can't see what's going on in other parts of the world. So maybe they think it's that bad everywhere. 
and God is bringing a judgment on the whole earth. Perhaps they think they're the new Noah and his family, right? And so they have to repopulate the entire earth now. There's just three humans left. We see that, uh, that they kind of have that idea. The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So what do they do? In order to get into this idea, they make their father, they make Lot get very drunk. And Lot is willing to get this drunk. Now, Lot's not an idiot. Lot's had wine before. Lot has had plenty to drink before. Lot, I'm sure, knows his limitations when it comes to alcohol. But he is completely given over to drunkenness in such a way that he loses all inhibitions and he loses uh, all even memory and recollection of what, what has happened. Like blackout drunk, right? You don't just get blackout drunk by accident, usually. You usually get blackout drunk because you're trying to get blackout drunk. You usually get blackout drunk because you're, you're sad. You're, you're grieving, right? I think that's what Lot is doing. I think Lot is grieving over the state of the world. He's grieving that he thinks he's the last man in the world. And he just goes to town with this wine. And he just gets blackout drunk. And his daughters, can, his daughters as part of this blackout drunkenness, have this plan. We need to populate the earth. I'll go in and I'll sleep with dad. And hopefully I can have a child by him. And then this, the daughter does that the second night. So, so Lot gets blackout drunk two nights in a row, right? So I am a chaplain, but I'm not above saying I have been drunk at times in my own life. I've, I've, I've gotten pretty drunk. And I, I'll tell you what, I pay for it the next day, right? If you've ever been there where you have a little too much to drink, you wake up feeling awful. You wake up with that bad hangover the next day and you say, the last thing I want to touch is any sort of alcohol. You know, I, I need to get over this headache, stomachache, whatever it might be. Lot doesn't do that. Lot gets blackout drunk two nights in a row. What does that suggest to you about his mental state? He's grieving, right? He's deeply sorrowful. He's, he's not all there mentally, perhaps, right? He thinks the whole world has been destroyed. So that's why his two daughters are able to concoct this plan. And you'll see that both of his daughters conceive. We're told in other places of scripture that it's God who opens up the womb. We're not told that these daughters sleep with their dad until they finally conceive, but they, they each do it one time and they get pregnant immediately. Now that sounds to me like God is opening up the womb for these two daughters. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that God is blessing this. That doesn't mean that God is saying, well, this is a great idea. I don't think that's at all what we're supposed to believe. But we do see that God will condescend even to this horrible story where these women know that they need to have children. And God will even meet these people in their desperation through this horrible incident. And, and God will open up the womb. Now, why would God do that? We have to remember, at this time, women had no rights. Men were the protectors of their women. And so if these women were to grow up without sons, then there's no one to protect them. Uh, there's no one. And of course, if there's no one else on the earth, you might think, well, why do they need to be protected? Well, there's other things that are out there that may try to get them, right? There's animals, there's all kinds of stuff. And if there are some people who may be left and they're, you know, we've all seen those post-apocalyptic movies where the couple people that survive 
the, the, uh, the apocalypse turn into these crazy people, you know, every man for himself just obliterating the, 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 the other people, right? We've all seen movies like that, I'm sure. So perhaps that's what they think. This is, this is life now, right? We need some, some young sons. We need sons who can grow up and be the protectors of this family. I think that's what's going on here. That seems to make the most sense out of the evidence. So who are these, these men? Because they are named. We are told that the first daughter has Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. And that is in verse 37. Yes, verse 37. Moab means um, from the father. So that's interesting. It's interesting that, you know, it takes nine months to conceive, right? Or excuse me, it doesn't take nine months to conceive. It takes nine months for a child to grow in their mother's womb. So by nine months later, you think these people would have figured out, oh, we're not the last couple people on the earth. There's more people here as they, as they start to travel and, and go around. Yet she still owns the fact that she did this with her dad. Like nine months later, right? you can change his name. She could have called him Patrick or Benjamin, or Judah, or anything else. Well, what does she call him? She calls him from the father, or son of my father. It, it could also be translated. So she's really honest with how she came about this child, and, and, and she's not uh, hiding the fact of this, this child's lineage, which is, which is really interesting. Moab grows up, and the Moabites really are a thorn in the side to the Israelites. If you remember the story of Balak and Balaam, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, hires a, uh, a man named Balaam to curse Israel as they're, as they're passing through his land. That's in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. Uh, we see the Moabites being a thorn in the side to Israel. But we also see some really good people coming from Moab as well. Ruth is a Moabitess. Ruth is from the people of Moab. Who is Ruth? Ruth is famous for the book of Ruth. If you've never read the book of Ruth, I recommend it. I think it's only three or four chapters. Really easy to read. You can read it before you go to bed tonight. And uh, the story of Ruth, she pledges her loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And uh, her and Naomi go back to live in Israel. And it's uh, Boaz, uh, the man who, who uh, redeems her. Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer and takes her... Uh, as her, as his wife, and the story of Ruth ends with this great little genealogy. Th th this is the whole purpose of Ruth, the little, little genealogy at the end. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Ab Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Ruth's husband, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Who's David? King David. Ruth is this Moabitess woman who is in the lineage of King David. She is David's great-grandmother. She's actually mentioned by name in the New Testament, in, in the lineages of Jesus. There's a, only a handful of women mentioned in, in the New Testament in those lineages, and Ruth is one of them. So she is this great woman of faith who pledges her loyalty to Naomi, to Naomi's God, Yahweh. And because of that, God richly blesses her. She marries Boaz and uh, has children by him. And David comes from that line, the great king. Of course, the one who will come from David and his lineage is our Lord and King, Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne of David. So that's Ruth, and she's a Moabite. 
this is her lineage. So there are some good people come from Moab, but for the most part, Moab is a th the Moabites are a thorn in the side to the Israelites. This other one who's born is uh, Ben Ami. Ben Ami, which means uh, son of my people. And he is the father of the Ammonites. The, Am <laughs> the Ammonites were the folks who refused to help Israel when they came out of the Exodus in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Solomon, David's son, Solomon, uh, years later from now, will marry an Ammonite woman and she will draw him away from Yahweh. If you remember, Solomon marries many, 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 many women. Solomon has a harem of wives. One of those wives is an Ammonite woman named Naamah. This is 1 Kings chapter 14. And she becomes the mother of Rehoboam, who ends up taking over the southern kingdom at the Great Divide. Jeroboam rules in the north, which is one of Solomon's uh, military leaders. And then Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, uh, rules in the south when the great kingdom splits. Uh, it was Naamah who drew uh, Israel away to uh, Molech worship, worshiping the god of Molech. Molech is where you sacrifice your children. Uh, you burn your children to the god of Molech. Amos 1 verse 13 says that Ammonites would rip their pregnant would rip pregnant women open when they conquered them. So quite a uh, horrible people. Those are the Ammonites. Oftentimes a thorn in the side to the people of Israel as well. Shall we continue on to chapter 20 or is there, any, is there anything that we'd like to discuss? Chapter 19, any questions on, on the last part of chapter 19? I was saying it's reason but maybe you could say what's the reason why god let them have it? that's a great question so, maybe so that's the reason why like you know yeah we'll talk about god has your plan already set the whole path maybe he had that he let that happen because he knew this or not this had to happen but he knew this was going to happen this line's going to give the line to jesus mm -hmm. so he this had to happen to lead to that the development maybe. yeah so the, the question is, why, why did God allow this to happen? We, we, we know that God's the one who opens the womb. And so these children weren't born outside of God's providence, right? Uh, it's not like they were accidentally born in this weird accident that happened and God goes, whoops, missed that one. Wasn't paying attention there. Was too busy focused on Abraham over here or something like that. No, uh, God opens up the womb. Nothing happens out, out, outside of God's providence. However, not even however, it's really uh, nothing happens outside of God's providence, period. And there's more to that story. We're also told that, you know, we, we have, we, we, we are given a choice whether to be faithful or to be faithless, right? We have a proclivity towards sinfulness. Absolutely, we do. But Lot is a son of Abraham, or not a son, excuse me, a nephew of Abraham, meaning he worships Yahweh. In fact, he was just saved by Yahweh. So it's Lot's duty to raise these children in the admonition of the Lord. He's supposed to raise these children to fear God appropriately, to love Yahweh and to serve Yahweh. Uh, we don't hear from Lot after this. So we don't know really what happened with these kids. We're not told if Moab and Ben-Ami, the two sons, were good or bad. We're not told how, how they turned out, right? But we do know that the people groups who came from them uh, were certainly questionable in a lot of ways. Let me say, so, so there's a couple ways we could take that. I think about myself. I am called uh, as a father to 
to, uh, to raise my children in the way they should go. I am called as a father to uh, search out my own heart and crucify the sin in my own heart. I am also as a father called to uh, help my children and teach my children to crucify the sin that's in their own hearts, right? That's what fathers do. We defend our families, and one of the ways we defend our families is by seeking out the, the enemy in my own heart, which is my own sin, and, and, and helping my children discover the enemies in their own hearts, which is their own sin. Hopefully, my children will do that well. Hopefully, God will give me a, a special understanding for my children and a grace that I can do that for my kids, and I can do that well, and I can be a, a good and righteous father for my kids. However, I've seen many good and righteous fathers who did the best they could with what they had, the, be the best they could with, with what they knew, yet their child does not grow up to, fo to follow in the righteousness of his or her father, right? Uh, the child chooses to uh, reject all that and walk away, walk away from the faith. Um, I hope that's not the story of my kids, and so I pray for my kids. So we don't know what the story of uh, Moab and Ben-Ami are. Uh, we can presume that Lot and his daughters are going to raise these kids well, as best as they knew. And it could be that Moab and Ben-Ami themselves were very righteous. It could be that they were good, but somewhere along the line, the line got corrupted. And, and they ended up chasing after false gods and chasing after uh, the gods of the nations and got caught up in idol worship, in the worship of foreign gods, which destroys families, destroys nations, and becomes a thorn in the side to Israel. So Lot knew that those kids were his. Did Lot know that those kids were his? We're not told whether Lot knew those kids were his. I think we can assume Lot figured it out. Especially when his first daughter names the child Moab. What are you going to name him? I'm going to name him son of my father. Oh, well, if I hadn't figured it out now, there it is, right? Well, and if there's no other man around... You can sort of deduce. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's move on. Let's move on to a, to a much happier section. Uh, Genesis chapter 20, where Sarah is kidnapped by the king and uh, put into his harem, because this is the kind of stuff that Genesis tells us. Genesis chapter 20. <laughs> What's that? This is another, this is another interesting story where you're like, wow, this is in the Bible. Wow. this the, the... And what I love, the, the things we're supposed to learn from this, I mean, there's a lot of things in all, all of these stories. The Bible doesn't pull punches, right? The Bible's not repainting history. Right? It's not going back into its own history and, and wanting to kind of whitewash history or whatever and saying, oh, it's really not as bad as you thought it was. No, the Bible gives you the details and all of its and all the grim, gory details, right? Uh, that's kind of that's one of the reasons we know it's true. You know, if if you were to ask me to tell you my personal story, hey, tell me your story. You know, I, I would probably tell you all the all the high points of my life because I want to make myself look good. And if we really got to know each other, I, I might let you in on some of the lower points of my life, but you know, if you were to, if, if a historian, an uninterested historian was able to get an account of my whole life and tell all of my life from start to finish with all the high points and all the really low points, I would be quite embarrassed, I'm sure. Because I'm sure every one of us in this room would be embarrassed if someone did that about their own life. So uh, that's, the Bible is true. The Bible's not, not painting a false narrative here. Chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev. And lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. 
And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Let's pause there. We've seen this happen before, haven't we? This happened, a similar story in Genesis chapter 12. It wasn't Abimelech this time. It was Pharaoh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who took Sarah and put, put Sarah in his harem. And God plagued Pharaoh for the sake of Abraham. Abraham pulled the same trick saying, tell these people that you are my sister rather than telling them that you're my wife. And we discussed that the reason for that is, is because if they think that she is Abraham's sister, then they will start to negotiate the price for a bride. All right. If you don't have the father, you, you talk to the brother. And so you say, hey, brother, I'm really interested in your sister. I'd like to marry her. And then the brother can step in into that negotiation and say yes or no. Oh, I don't think this is a good marriage and blah, blah, blah. Puts him in a little position of power. However, if Abraham, if they think that Abraham is the husband, then they'll either just take her and not care about him or they'll kill him. Likely they would kill him. Uh, so we have a similar story again. Now, Abraham is not lying, as we'll see. Abraham and Sarah are half-brother and half-sister. So by saying she's my sister, he's not telling a lie. He's just, he's being uh, shrewd in his negotiations with these people. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. That's new. That's the first time I've ever seen a prophet in the Bible. So, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. We'll pause there. So the story unfolds a little bit differently than it does with Pharaoh. And with the story of Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12, God plagues Pharaoh's house. In Genesis 20 with Abimelech, God doesn't necessarily plague his house, but he visits him in a dream. And he says, you need to give her back. You need to give her back right now. Now, now notice, who is God visiting in the dream? Is God visiting Abraham in a dream and saying, what are you doing? This is, this is the second time you've done this. Shape up, boy. You know, is, is that what God's saying to Abraham? No. No. God says that to Abimelech. Hey, you took this man, you, excuse me, you took this woman, Sarah, and she actually belongs to another man. You need to give her back immediately. And so Abimelech does. Abimelech does give her back. Abimelech is innocent in this. Abimelech even says, you know, look, look at my own integrity. I, I didn't... You know, even though I took her into my harem, I did not lay with her. I kept her pure, didn't violate her in any way. She can go back to Abraham. And, and so he is, uh, he is he's, he's all the blessed for it. The reason that that comment is given uh, about him not going into Sarah is because we know the promised seed, Isaac, is coming. He comes in chapter 21, the very next chapter, the birth of Isaac. The one that's been promised for 24 years finally arrives. The Bible is clear. 
By the way, guys, this is not Abimelech's son who's born to Sarah. This is actually going to be Abraham's son. So I was very clear to say it's not Abimelech, uh, or Abimelech does not go near Sarah. We'll continue in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then the men, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did these things? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. That's very likely what would have happened. If they, if they knew that they were married, they would have killed Abraham and taken Sarah for themselves. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So Abraham is not lying, again, when he says that she is my sister. He's being shrewd in his negotiations. He's being shrewd in his negotiations with a, with a, a people who are pagans. Right? We, we sometimes get this idea that when Abraham goes and visits Pharaoh and Abraham visits Abimelech, that these are just normal, good, good old everyday folks, you know, good, good people. They come from good, healthy stock, like you might expect people to say. But these are not. These are pagans. You know, these people worship worship the gods of the other nations. They, they, they worship the gods that have been appointed to them from the, from the Tower of Babel episode, right? Like these people are idolatrous pagans. It's not a big deal for them to just kill some man to take his wife. That's the kind of people these are. And Abraham knows he needs to stay alive. Abraham knows that there's a promised child that will be born from him and Sarah. And he knows that Isaac is eventually going to give uh, down Isaac's lineage, uh, the Messiah, the one who's promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, is going to come. This Messiah is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Paul tells us that Abraham already has some sort of idea of this in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. He says that, always talking about how Abraham's looking forward to the seed, singular, meaning the seed being Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who's going to save the world. And through Messiah, Jesus, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That's one of those promises given to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12. That through him all nations will be blessed. So Abraham knows he has to stay alive. And Abraham knows that he has to protect himself and his family. And, Abraham, and I really think Abraham's just doing the best he can with what he's got, right? It's like, I'm not lying. I'm trying to set myself up in a position where I can defend my wife. If I tell them that I'm her husband, they're just going to kill me. And then, oh gosh, what's going on? So a lot of people will accuse Abraham of not being faithful. I, I don't think that's what's going on. I mean, could Abraham have just walked in there, you know, kicked the door down and be like, Sarah's my wife. Who wants to go? You want to take me down? Could he have done that? Yeah, he could have, right? And would God have protected him? Probably. Probably God, God would have honored that and protected him. But Abraham chose to go about it this way. And God still honors Abraham and protects Abraham and protects Sarah. Uh, verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given you a brother a thousand, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. 
It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, for they bore no children. Or rather, so that they bore children. So one of the curses to come on Abimelech's home is all the wombs closed up. So no one's having any more kids, because Abimelech took Sarah into his harem. For Yahweh had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Before we close, I want to go back and and look at one thing. We see that Abraham is called a prophet here in chapter 20. Where is that? Verse 7. Yes, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, know that you shall surely die. So what does it mean to be a prophet? Well, the word here is uh, when, when you get down to like the root of the word, it means a seer, one who sees things. And we know that Abraham has seen God. In fact, God has appeared to Abraham many times already. Every time God appears to Abraham, it's not in some disembodied voice of just, you know, speaking to him out of a great light in the sky. Or it's also not a dream like Abimelech has here. God actually physically appears to Abraham. Abraham sees God with his eyes. This is what the prophets are. Prophets are people who have seen God. In fact, uh, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament is... Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, the one who comes after Elijah. And there is this, uh, there's this wonderful scene with Elisha. And unfortunately, I can't remember all the details of this scene, but he is, uh, there's, there's this great battle coming and his, uh, Elisha's servant is terrified because he sees the armies lining up over there and he's thinking, oh man, they're about to just destroy us. We're, we're, we're in a lot of trouble, Elisha. And Elisha's just totally cool. He doesn't care. He's like not threatened at all by this great enemy army. And, <laughs> and the servant goes, Elisha, why aren't you afraid? And Elisha says, uh, he, he, he prays that God would open up the eyes of his servant. And when his, his eyes are opened, he then sees the enemy army, but then he sees the army of God all over the hills and like all the angels in their battle raiment ready to squash this human enemy army. The story unfolds in a way that it kind of suggests that Elisha lives this way all the time. Like Elisha just always sees into the spiritual realm. Everywhere he goes, he's seeing the angels at work and stuff. That's why he's able to see all these angels out around this army. So which is why you never see Elisha getting flustered at all. <laughs> he knows that God's got this because he sees God's power through his angels coming down and protecting him. This is what seers do. Seers are people or prophets are people who have seen God face to face. Remember the great prophets of old of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah. There's both in both of their books, there's there's uh, the scenes where they are kind of transported up into heaven, into the heavenly throne room, and they see God face to face. This is what Abraham is. Abraham is one of these prophets. Abraham has seen God. He's seen God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He's been visited by God several times. Therefore, Abraham has been brought close to God and is part of God's special counsel. He can advise God. Now, he's not going to you know, change God's mind because 
you don't change God's mind, obviously. God is immutable. It's the fancy theological word for that. But, but Abraham does advise God. He is invited close to give God advice, to advise him on things. We see Abraham already doing that in Genesis chapter 18, where he intercedes for Sodom. Remember? Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you destroy the city? No, I'm not going to destroy the city. He goes, he goes all the way to 10. Lord, what about 10? Is there 10 righteous, will you destroy the city? And God says, I'm not going to destroy the city for 10 righteous. He goes, okay. Of course, there's not 10 righteous and God still destroys the city. But, but Abraham takes on this special role of advising God. That's what prophets do. They advise God and, then they, and they are the mouthpiece for God to the people. And that's what Abraham is. Abraham is God's mouthpiece to the people, to the world right now. Is he always special, special man, special mouthpiece to, to present and bring out all of God's blessings for the world? As, as we, as we have already read in Genesis chapter twelve, in the original call of Abraham, there are several blessings. I will make you a great nation. I will bless and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, we know in the fuller revelation with the New Testament that is uh, comes to its full fruition in Jesus Christ, the promised seed. Uh, through Jesus, all nations of the earth are indeed blessed as the gospel goes into all nations, tribes, and tongues. People are converted to Christianity. But that starts right back here in Genesis chapter 12. So we see in Genesis 20 that Abraham is referred to as one of these prophets by Abimelech, prophet of Yahweh. So we'll close there. Are there uh, any final thoughts or questions? Okay, next week we finally get to the birth of Isaac, the one who has been promised for so long is finally born. So we'll tackle that next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for gathering us together to study your word. We pray that you would be with us as we depart now. We pray that you would guide us into all truth and righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.